This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a forum for courageous conversations about difficult subjects. Tonight is the last in our series about male violence. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Jim Gilligan about the causes of violence. Jim Gilligan is a psychiatrist who's a professor in the schools of medicine, law, and arts and science at New York University, prior to which he was on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School for 30 years, where he directed the Institute of Law and Psychiatry. He specializes in studying the causes and prevention of violent behavior, including both homicide and suicide, and he's worked in both mental hospitals and prisons. For 15 years, he directed the mental health services for the Massachusetts Prisons and Prison Mental Hospital. He's been a consultant on the causes and prevention of violence to numerous governmental institutions and leaders around the world, including President Clinton, Tony Blair, the World Health Organization, the World Court in The Hague. He's authored several books, including Violence, Reflections on a National Epidemic, Preventing Violence, and his most recent book, Why Some Politicians Are More Dangerous Than Others. Welcome to Safe Space, Jim. Thank you for inviting me. So you have a very provocative theory about the causes of violence, and I'd like to ask that you take us back to when you first were realizing it, and to tell me a story of meeting with a prisoner that you were working with, where you started to feel like you were understanding the causes of violence. First of all, I would say that I I discovered a lot of what I knew about violence from meeting with prisoners, but after I had uh, begun my psychiatric training at the Harvard Medical School. But what I realized once I had done that was that I had really learned about violence in my childhood. Um, but And I wasn't even aware of it when I first started working with prisoners, how much that informed my uh, insights. But well, with prisoners, so, so, let's, so let's start there then, Jim. If you okay. don't mind telling that, I'd love to hear about that. Okay. When I was a child, my father, who was a very respectable surgeon, you know, a citizen of the community, uh, would beat up my brothers terribly. I mean, knock them across the room to the point where I thought he would accidentally, not deliberately, but accidentally kill them. And uh, this was at a time before people had ever even heard of the concept of the battered child syndrome. And nobody in the community regarded it as their business. Uh, nobody would believe such a thing would happen. And this is the world I grew up in. I, he didn't do that to me. I, I learned how to avoid violence. I felt I learned how to become a lion tamer, you know, and deal with a lion with nothing but a chair. <laughs> and uh, that later came useful. When I became useful when I worked with violent criminals in prisons. That was the family background. Then when I got, went into my psychiatric training, I had started out thinking I would just I would be a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst and treat people more or less like myself, uh, nobody terribly abnormal or damaged. And then I had the chance to work in the prisons in my training. I'd never heard of prison psychiatry. I had no interest in it. I thought it would be uh, futile, a waste of time, that you couldn't treat such people. But when I actually got into the prisons and I started asking people, who were there, violent criminals, why they had killed or injured someone, I was amazed to discover I kept getting the same answer over and over again. It was because he disrespected me, or she disrespected me. The prisoners used that term so often they abbreviated it into the slang term, he dissed me, or she dissed me. And I began to 
to just be impressed with the idea that this experience of feeling disrespected was so central to the motivation of violence. And I'm talking about every level of violence. Mafia dons would kill people because they had disrespected them. And, but the same would be true, husbands would kill wives because they disrespected them. Parents sometimes killed children because they disrespected them, or children would kill parents, and, and I mean, on and on. And that was what taught me that the experience of what I would call shame and humiliation, that is the feeling of being insulted, disrespected, dishonored, demeaned, slighted, and so on, that that, that is a central motivation for violent behavior. And so I decided I needed to understand that better. So, of course, we all feel slighted or dissed at different part times in our lives. Yes. How, did, how did you, sadly, it's an all-too-universal experience, how did you come to understand what it was for these men that really tipped them over the edge so that when they felt dissed, they responded in such a catastrophic way? You're absolutely right. Everybody is disrespected at one time or another. We all are humiliated. I, I knew from my own experience as a child that the experiences that made me most angry uh, and just furious would be when I was humiliated or insulted or something by somebody. So I knew that intuitively within myself. But I also knew that most of us, I mean, including myself, never engaged in any serious violence, even when insulted like that. So I realized that other conditions had to be in place before humiliation and shame would lead to violence. One of the most important is if people, people only become violent in response to feeling shamed and humiliated if they don't have nonviolent means available by which to maintain or restore their sense of self-esteem and self-respect and self-worth. For example, almost all of us, when we're insulted, and everybody is at one time or another, we have other means available, nonviolent means, by which to restore our self-esteem. We have some degree of education or a respected occupation or career or some standing in the community or at least with our family and friends. The people, the violent criminals that I saw in the prison, almost all of them had none of that. They were often uneducated, illiterate, unemployed, often homeless, poverty-stricken, had suffered an amazing degree of child abuse in their families. They belonged to demographic groups, uh, ethnic groups, that had been subjected to collectively to systematic shaming and being treated as inferior and, and worthless. And I began to realize they, had, they didn't have nonviolent means available by which to restore their self-esteem. One of the most amazing things I discovered in the Massachusetts prisons was we did a study one year to find out what program had been most effective in preventing recidivism or reoffending when violent criminals finished their prison term and left the prison. We found one program that had been 100% successful in preventing reoffending and re-imprisonment, and that was getting a college degree while in prison. We had a program there that cost the inmates nothing, and it cost the state nothing. Boston University professors donated their time to teach college credit courses. The inmates who got a college degree, we had several hundred who 
did not return to prison for a new crime over a 25-year period. A stunning result. My interpretation of that is education is the clearest, most direct way to maintaining a sense of pride and self-respect that can strengthen you against experiences of being shamed or humiliated by others. You can respect yourself no matter how others treat you. And to me, that was a kind of empirical proof of my theory that, that it was being shamed that, uh, that stimulated violence. Part of what I learned from reading your books is that violence is an attempt to regain self-esteem, that, that actually, especially in a culture of masculinity that sees superior strength uh, as such a value of masculine identity, that va- violence was a way to reclaim some sense of status and self-respect. Yes, in our society, and frankly, in, most, in almost all other cultures, which I would call kind of patriarchal or sexist uh, cultures, men are required to be violent in order to prove their manhood in many, many situations, and they are punished and shamed or even killed, executed, if they refuse to be violent. And when they're violent enough, they're given congressional medals of honor for having killed so many other people. So the, the definition of manhood in our culture often requires men to be violent. I say this, you know, not to in any way criticize people who, you know, who risked their own lives to try to protect the rest of us in warfare and, and won congressional medals of honor. What, rather, what I'm trying to talk about is how our culture subjects men to these pressures where they feel they have to do this in order to be uh, adequate men. The problem is this cultural conditioning doesn't just result in war heroes and congressional medals of honor. It also results in violent crimes at a level that is actually uh, much more extreme in the United States than it is in any other developed country. Uh, I mean, sad to say, but it's true just an empirical fact that the United States has a murder rate that is five to ten times as high as the rate of any other developed country on earth. And uh, we need to look at that as a problem in our culture and, you know, rethink how we want to, uh, to, to raise our, our boys and our men uh, to think what it, what it requires to, in order to be a an adequate man. Well, that that brings me to another subject about punishment, because of course, in our in our society, we punish violent criminals. We don't just restrain them and lock them away, but we there's all kinds of ways that they are further humiliated and punished for their crime. And you make at first what may seem like a rather h- astonishing assertion, which is that punishment always generates more violence. And I'd love to hear you explain that to me. Yes. Let me say, first of all, I have spent 25 years working in prisons with the most violent people our society creates, and I have seen what happens with punishment. One of the biggest myths in our society is that punishment deters violence. My experience says the opposite. The most effective way to stimulate violence is by punishing people. Now, I make a sharp distinction between punishment and restraint. I do believe we need to restrain people if they are harming others or threatening to harm others. I have fought sometimes for years to keep some people in prison 
who I thought were dangerous to the public. But restraint is not the same thing as punishment. With children, we restrain a two-year-old from running into the street if there's traffic, if the child won't respond to words alone. We physically restrain them. We need to do that with adults, too, if they're engaged in behavior that can be dangerous to themselves or others. But that's, that doesn't mean we break their arms, you know, in order to, to do it. We're trying to prevent injury, not cause it. In the prisons, what I saw on a day-to-day basis is that the more severely the prisoners were punished, the more violent they became. And then there was a vicious circle. The more violent they became, the more they'd be punished, and it was just an endless, vicious circle. Now, this isn't just my impressions. We have several decades of research on child-rearing in which, you know, that subject is so complicated. There are very few generalizations that have really emerged uh, from all of that with reliability. I'd say the solidest finding that has come from all that research concerns violence, and that is that the more severely children are punished, the more violent they become. And how do you, you want to create a violent child, punish him. How do you understand and, that? And again, by punishment, I mean inflicting pain above and beyond what is necessary to restrain them from harming themselves or others. Okay, so he, tell me how you understand that, Jim. Okay, I think the understanding is based on the psychology of shame. Punishment shames people, and shame stimulates violence. The more, and, and, but there's another factor, which is the psychology of guilt. Shame is the lack of self-love. It's the opposite of pride, which is self-love. Guilt is the presence of self-hate, and it's the opposite of the feeling of innocence, which is the absence of self-hate. The capacity for guilt feelings is a very important feature of human personality that inhibits any fully developed normal person from becoming violent toward other people. Because we would feel guilty about hurting other people, and that's why we don't do it. People in the prisons never develop the capacity for feelings of guilt precisely because they had been punished so much. Now tell me how that works. How does okay. punishment make impossible to develop? The more you punish somebody, the more you relieve feelings of guilt. The more you relieve that's the whole feelings. The whole purpose of punishment uh-huh. is to eliminate their guilt. The idea is to make, uh, the idea of punishment in the law is to make criminals pay their debt to society. The idea is once they've paid their debt, then they no longer owe a debt. So let me ask, let me me see if I can sum up what I'm hearing you say, Jim. What I'm hearing you say is that the more a child is punished, the less capacity for guilt they have and the more shame they have. Yes, because shame and guilt are diametrical opposites. They're antagonists. The more you shame somebody, the more you relieve their guilt feelings. See, that is the failure of our prison system. I mean, that is the psychological mistake that is made in our prison system. And I think the criminal law, in fact, is based on one huge mistake. And that is the mistake of believing that punishment will deter violence. On the contrary, punishment stimulates violence. The United States has the most punitive prison system in the developed world, and it has the highest rate of criminal violence, particularly lethal violence, murder in the developed world. And that's not a coincidence. That's a direct consequence. So let me understand more your psychology of shame, because what I have always thought is that shame was the feeling of myself as being bad, as you put it, the absence of self-love. 
And that guilt was the sense of the behavior that I did is bad. And that it is possible to feel both about the same thing. Like if I stole something, I feel guilty that I stole it. And I feel ashamed that I'm the kind of person that would steal. So I've never thought of them as diametrically opposed. I'd love to hear how you think of that, if you think of that differently. Uh, okay, here's how I think about it. But, and again, I'm, I'm basing this on my work with people who, who did steal apples and, <laughs> and did a lot worse things than that. Right. The people I saw in the prisons, they didn't feel ashamed at all of having stolen an apple or a car or of having killed somebody. On the contrary, they felt pride in that, and they would boast about it. That's one reason it made it so easy for the police to, to find out who had committed this crime, because they were so proud of what they had done, they couldn't help boasting about it. They didn't feel ashamed of having hurt somebody. What they would feel ashamed of is if they were passive, if they appeared to be weak, if they appeared to be effeminate. I mean, this is a very uh, misogynistic, sexist uh, ideology or, or a set of attitudes. They would not feel shame at all about hurting somebody else. They would feel ashamed if they were passive or weak or submitted to punishment without uh, fighting back. The, feel, the people that feel guilty do feel guilty about whether it's stealing an apple or, or hurting somebody else. In St. Augustine's Confessions, he talks about the guilt he felt about literally stealing a, an apple, or maybe it was a pear from a neighboring orchard. But he was a saint. And as Freud said once, nobody feels guiltier than the saints. That's why they're saints, because they have such a capacity, feeling such a strong conscience. I learned the opposite. Nobody feels more innocent than the criminals. That's why they're capable of committing crimes, because they don't have a capacity for guilt feelings. You write, you write about how almost every murder is conceived by the murderer as self-defense. And it's, it, I mean self-defense in the most literal sense of the word, defense of the self. Before I started working in the prisons, I thought self-defense meant defense of the body. I thought of the instinct of self-preservation as to keep the body alive. What I learned in the prison is that that was, a, was an oversimplified view. The people I saw in the prisons told me, the most violent of them, told me that they themselves, meaning their self, their personality, had died long before they started killing other people or injuring other people. And what they meant by that was they felt dead inside. They felt empty, numb. They had lost the capacity for feelings. They, and they could tell me often the, the time in their life when that they started feeling that way, which was when they had felt overwhelmingly shamed and humiliated, whether by uh, a father or mother or uh, people in the community. And in many cases, they would then go on to commit their crimes against others to see if they could have feelings, because they found it so. They found this feeling of numbness and deadness more intolerable than even physical pain would be. They would mutilate themselves terribly. The, the prison doctors are kept busy day after day repairing the self-mutilations that prisoners subject themselves to. They don't do that because they feel guilty. This isn't penance to, un, you know, uh, expiate their guilt for hurting people. They're trying to see if they can have feelings because they feel so numb and dead inside. 
And I think that's what humiliation does to people. There's a word for overwhelming humiliation called mortification. People said they were mortified by something. Mortification comes from Latin roots meaning to make dead. And I discovered that overwhelming humiliation makes the self dead. The self is a, a fragile psychological construct that we all create, a sense of self, and it can be destroyed and killed by overwhelming humiliation. So what I'm hearing you say then is that if the, the men you were working with said, why did I kill him? I killed him because I was dissed. Then if I put all this together, what I'm, what I'm getting is that you're saying if a person feels dissed, they feel that their, their very self is at stake and that the reason why murder feels like self-defense is that they're protecting that very fragile sense of self that feels literally threatened by shaming and disrespect. Exactly. No, you, you, you summed it up perfectly. That's why I think it's, it, well, let me put it this way. I think it's terribly important for us as a society to, to learn these things, to become aware of these things. If we want to become more successful than we've been up to now in preventing violence, because that's the point of everything I'm talking about. The whole point of learning how to understand and treat the violent people is so how can we prevent violence in the first place? People sometimes say, well, aren't you paying more attention to the perpetrators than the victims? I would say, on the contrary, if all you're doing is punishing the perpetrators after they have created victims, you're not helping the victims. I'm trying to do something for the victims, which is more important, and that is to prevent them from becoming victims in the first place, so which love- you can only do by preventing violence. So tell me, what, what are the ways that you feel it's most important for all of us in our everyday lives to contribute to preventing violence? The most important thing we can do is to realize that every human being desperately needs to have their worth respected, to have their human dignity left intact and not, not destroyed, but everybody needs to be treated as of, of equal worth. But the point is that if we create a society in which some people are treated as inferior, then we create a society that is going to have violence. That, that's a recipe for violence. We need to create a society in which the gap between the rich and the poor is as small as possible. Because children who are poor simply don't have an equality of opportunity with children who are rich. I mean, we know this from decades of empirical research. This is not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of fact. So we need to create a society that is as equal as possible if we want to get the level of violence down as low as possible. I think before I read your book, I always thought that too, that, you know, the wide disparity between the rich and the poor was a huge problem and that violence was born of that. But I always thought to myself it was because, you know, the truly impoverished didn't have, men, didn't have many other choices. And what I'm hearing you say is that it has to do, it, that may be part of it. You said they don't have other non-violent means to, to build their self-esteem. But really what, you're, what I hear you saying is that if a person is treated as inferior all their life is made to feel less than, is made to feel lower class, then they carry with them 
a sense, a sensitivity to shame that is dangerous. That's exactly right. In fact, I would say that there are people I would call shame-driven personalities who are so sensitive to being dissed um, or disrespected by others that, you know, there's no question they can, they can distort reality. They can feel they're being dissed if somebody says good morning to them. I mean, I know that happens. What we need to recognize is we need to protect human beings from overwhelming shame. We also need to help them to learn to tolerate shame. I mean, everybody, everybody has to uh, experience feelings of shame at one time or another. As you know, this is the last in an eight-week series on male violence. And one of the interviews I did early in the series was with a man named Lundy Bancroft, who's an author about domestic violence. And he made the very strong case that domestic violence is about power and control in the service of privilege, that the man wants to control everywhere the woman goes and what she does and what she says, really because it establishes a system of privilege for himself. What he said about the psychology of the abuser is that it's less about their feelings and more about their thinking, their, th- their thoughts of entitlement to such privilege, which justify this kind of control. So that was his explanation, and I'd love to hear your response to that. Yes. Okay, so let me add something uh, to what I said earlier. When I mentioned that humiliation alone doesn't stimulate violence, there has to be other you know, conditions present. I mentioned uh, the lack of nonviolent means of maintaining self-esteem. Let me mention another one. Being raised as a man in our culture makes it more likely that people will become violent. Uh, violence is mainly a male behavior. Men are much more violent than women with respect to both homicide and suicide and warfare and capital punishment and everything else. But the, the rule in a shame culture is that a man is only a man if he controls his woman. In other words, and is superior to her. Let me put it another way. I, I spent 10 years working with violent criminals in the San Francisco jails. Most of them, well, half of them were there. They were all there for violent crimes. But half of them, it was domestic violence. You know, they'd beaten up their wives, or in some cases, killed their wives. Now, the reason, what, what we did discovered when we worked with them was they were motivated by an understanding of the world, that the world was divided into the superior and the inferior. And in that division, men were supposed to be superior and women were supposed to be inferior. And if a man was not superior to, quote, his woman, then he was not really a man. He was emasculated. He was uh, a wimp or a sissy. And if, if a woman objected to being treated as inferior and, and being subservient, it was the, the obligation of the man to whip her into shape, I mean, often by literally whipping her. And when we challenged that uh, with these men, and, and, and they realized that this is an absurd set of rules. I mean, there's no rational basis for such a set of rules. They began to feel they had been brainwashed by the society they had grown up in. And I think they were right. I think all men in our society, uh, including myself and uh, men in every kind of social background, are taught that men are supposed to be superior to women. It's only recently 
that that has really been challenged, and and people are, as we challenged it with these men in the prison. What we discovered, this was dramatically effective in reducing the rate of violence. The rate of violence dropped to zero within the jail, and that we had an 83% lower recidivism rate when these men left the jail. Just helping them get that they really didn't have to reinforce this superior-inferior dynamic. It was that easy. Somehow, what was somehow. amazing to me was how quickly they caught it, and they then once started, wanted to start to educate new prisoners when they came into the jail. So we trained these men to lead these uh, therapy groups themselves, as in AA, you know? So this is a wonderful note for me to ask my last question, which is really about how much hope is there for these men. Here you were uh, working with some of the most violent men and criminals, and you are the psychiatrist. You are the person trying to bring healing in, in any way, if it's possible. And I'm curious, in a man who has been that deeply shamed that he feels dead inside, how did you envision what you could do that would be helpful to him? I, I will tell you, when I first started working in the prisons, I thought the people I saw were untreatable. I thought they were hopeless. Uh, they had been violent for years and years uh, before they came into the prisons and even after they'd been in them. I then learned how wrong I was. Today, I would not give up on anybody. I, I've seen people that I thought were hopeless, untreatable, who after years of, of treatment, and I, I must say it took, has taken years, have become totally nonviolent, living constructive lives. I mentioned the fact that we, uh, uh, we found we had a zero recidivism rate with people who got a, uh, a college degree while in prison. We had an 83% reduction in uh, violent recidivism in the San Francisco jails after literally only four months of an extremely intensive 12-hour-a-day program of saturated uh, group therapy and re-education. I, I would not give up on anybody. On that note, Jim, we are going to need to stop. I want to thank you so much both for this interview and for the very inspiring work that you are doing to prevent violence. Thank Absolutely. you for that. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music, and especially to Daniel Oppenheim and Julie Kolpitz, who've served as the informal consultants to this eight-week series on violence. If you'd like to listen to the show in its entirety or email the link to a friend, please go to the website at www.safespaceradio.com. There you can email me a request for a future topic. You can subscribe to get weekly links to the shows. You can also download the podcast from the iTunes store and like us on Facebook. Next week, I'll be beginning a new series on medical trauma. My guest will be artist and filmmaker Nancy Andrews speaking about the trauma of being a patient in the ICU. Coming up next is Watchdog. <laughs>